All right, so we're, here we go. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna depend on you guys a lot to help me out today, uh, because we're we're moving on to a new text. Just when I felt like I was starting to get a sense of the the other one, now we're in a whole new world. Uh, and I have a lot of notes, but I don't know exactly how to go through them. So please feel free to interject at any moment so that we can get clearer about about things. Uh, a couple of practical issues. One is that uh, I'm, I've been fiddling with the syllabus a little bit. We, we are behind by one day because we spent three sessions on the origin of the work of art. And... Um, I still think that we're going to need two sessions on the question concerning technology. And I want to add uh, another essay that I'm going to put in between. It seems to me that you can't understand this obscure stuff at the end of the question concerning technology about the saving power, the way the danger, wherein lies the danger, there, there there lies the saving power also. You can't understand the saving power stuff at all unless you read the next essay, which is The Turning. Uh, so I want to I wanna put The Turning in after we're done with the question concerning technology. So anyhow, I fiddled with the syllabus, and I've got a new version of it. I sent it to Max. I'm hoping Max will later today or something, tomorrow, put it up on the course website, and you should be able to see it. It's not urgent that you see it right away, but basically the next two sessions we'll do the question concerning technology. After that, we'll do the turning, and then we'll proceed as as we were before, taking some less time on some things. Also, uh, next time when we continue with the question concerning technology, I want to try to circle back and do the beginning. We're sort of going to skip the beginning part of it, uh, about the four causes, because I can't think about that stuff uh, very well, uh, except in the absence of an example. And there is a good example uh, of it that I'd like you to read. So that's um, that's going to be hopefully also on the course website. That's an excerpt that Jason is going to be able to get for us soon, I think. Hopefully. Yes, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Order this afternoon. Wonderful. Okay, so it's a book by an important, it's an excerpt from a book by an important but sort of obscure uh, contemporary philosopher named Albert Borgman, who's uh, who's in Montana, and uh, he's a philosopher of technology. He's um, very Heideggerian, but doesn't write about Heidegger. I think he actually is steeped in Heidegger. I think he grew up in Heidegger's hometown or something. I mean, he, he's, he's steeped in the world of Heidegger and understands it in a very intuitive sense, but writes really just about technology and about the role that technology plays in contemporary life. And so the book that we're going to read an excerpt from is called uh, Technology and the Character of Modern Life or Modern Existence or something like that. And we're going to read um, an excerpt in which he's talking about uh, he's talking about someone who doesn't yet live in or uh, in the 
contemporary understanding of being. So he's he's describing um, a, a skilled artisan in the late 19th century, a wheelwright, someone who makes wheels. And I think in the context of that discussion, it's a short discussion, it's just about eight pages, but in the context of that discussion, the discussion of the four causes that... Um, Heidegger gives on pages 6 to 12 will we'll make more sense. So I want to leave those for for next time. Um, so next time we'll continue with the question concerning technology and I'll put the Borgman ex- excerpts up on the up on the website. Okay. So so we're moving from uh, the origin of the work of art to the question concerning technology. This is a move um, both uh, from a description of a particular kind, uh, from a b- description of one kind of phenomena to a description of a different set of phenomena, and it's also a move uh, from one period of Heidegger's work to a later period of Heidegger's work. The origin of the work of art was written in um, 1935. Uh, the question concerning technology was first written in, uh, in 1949, and then given again later as a set of, uh, of a series of lectures in 1955. Uh, and at this point, I think it's fair to say that Heidegger's concerned less with characterizing the history of being and what it is for what makes it possible for a mode of revealing to hold sway in a given epoch in the history of being. And more, he's concerned more with uh, the the current epoch in the history of being. The epoch that he thinks is characterized by, um, uh, is properly characterized as a technological age. So one way to, to draw the two uh, the two texts together is to ask the question whether the current technological age uh, is an age in which there could be works of art. So we have, hopefully now, anyhow, some, albeit manifestly unclear, sense for what a, what a work of art is. It's got this earthly aspect. It's got this worldly aspect. The, wor- the earthly aspect is the aspect that's self-concealing and mysterious, presents itself as self-concealing, and so is the ground on the basis of which we're able to go forth. And the worldly aspect is somehow what's clear, what's clear to us. And these two aspects are in, in uh, struggle with, with one another. And the question is whether there could be a work of art in the in the modern age. In the, sorry, not modern. Modern is a technical term, which means sort of from Descartes to Kant, the contemporary age, our age, the current age. So, are there works of art in the in the in the contemporary age? And it's a little hard to say, but if there are, they have to be. They have to have a couple of features. One is. Uh, they don't seem to have very much earth to them. So what's what we'll see this more clearly, hopefully, uh, throughout the course of today. But the current understanding of being, the current mode of revealing, 
is a mode of revealing according to which everything is understood as orderable resources. That's uh, the essence of technology. These things hopefully will become a little clearer. The essence of technology is enframing, he calls it, gestell. And that's the challenge that we experience constantly to order to order to put things in order and to understand them in terms of their orderability understand them as resources that can be ordered um, and if that's all there is to if that is what it is in virtue of which everything gets to be what it is then nothing seems to have much of an intrinsic aspect at all part of the point of everything's being resources is that every re- ultimately every resource is interchangeable with every other resource so there's really ultimately no difference between something's being one thing and something's being another uh, he he flirts with different explanations of this at one point he seems to try to explain everything in terms of electricity uh at another point he seems to try to explain everything in terms of information uh but ultimately, in the story of modern physics, we're going to get an account of everything as a resource. Standing reserve is the term that we use that gets used in this translation. Uh, that's the translation of the German word Bestand. And uh, everything is a resource. Everything is orderable and interchangeable with everything else. And so nothing is anything intrinsically. Nothing is anything. Nothing is different from anything else in any intrinsic way. And if that's if that's right, it seems as though we have ultimately a totally clarified and non-mysterious characterization of everything that's anything. It's so clarified and so non-mysterious that it doesn't seem to have anything like an earthly aspect. There's the whole point of modern physics is that it's supposed to make clear for us what it is for anything to be anything at all. And so there doesn't seem to be anything that counts as, or that could count as, uh, an aspect of a central work of art for our culture that presents itself as as self-concealing. So, um, that now, it's important to recognize that that doesn't mean that there isn't anything in the culture that's self-concealing. Um, for one thing, something important in the culture hides itself, namely the understanding of being of the culture, this enframing, this sense that we're challenged to see everything as orderable resources. That, that does hide itself, and it hides itself so much that um, it creates a certain kind of danger, and that's what we need to talk about. So the claim isn't that nothing is self-concealing or hidden from us. The claim is that we don't experience anything as self-concealing. Insofar as we don't, it seems as though there couldn't be an earthly aspect to anything, and so it doesn't look like there's anything like a work of art. Uh, Now, uh, I think in a certain sense, one way to read the moral of this essay is that uh, Heidegger is trying to give us a way of recovering the sense that there's something that's hidden from us. 
he th- he seems to think that one of the characteristics of contem- the contemporary technological age is that we've lost the sense that anything's from hid- anything's hidden from us, and insofar as we've lost that sense. Uh, well, that's both a danger and in it also lies a possible saving power. And But he thinks that we only get the saving power, we have to sort of explain all these things, but we only get the saving power unless we regain the sense that something is something is hidden from us. So that's a sort of overview. And, and when we'll do that, when we do that, we'll regain the possibility of some kind of work of art. Maybe not a work of art, that unifies an entire understanding of being for the culture, maybe just something something much more local, maybe something like the Van Gogh shoes, or maybe something even more local of the sort that will um, that we'll talk about when we read the Thing essay uh, towards the end of the end of the semester. But at any rate, it looks like Heidegger's trying to find a way for us to regain the sense that it's part of our background understanding of how things are, that there is something that's hidden from us, and that and that it's and that it ought to be and it needs to be hidden from us, and that we need to preserve we need to be the preservers of what it is that's hidden from us. Now all those things are things that he's pointing in the direction of at the very end of the essay. Okay. So so let's launch let's launch in. Here's to, to give a little more meat to the way I understand the final proposal, and then we'll sort of switch back to the to the beginning of the thing. I think that if you had to give a short characterization of what of the argument of the essay, here's what I would say it is. Heidegger says we live in a in a technological age. He's interested in knowing what the essence of technology is. The essence of technology isn't itself anything technological. It's not a device. It's not. Uh, it's, and in particular, the essence of the technological age isn't anything like what you might have in 1949 thought it was. You know, the danger of a technological device that could blow up the, the you know the, the earth or get rid of all humanity or something technology it does characterize the modern age but not in the way that you might have thought it does rather it, te- it characterizes the modern age by in the sense that um, uh, it something there's a style in the practices that uh challenges us to understand everything that is as a resource that can be ordered. That's the that's the essence of technology. That's in framing. Now and and in framing is a, a mode of revealing, just like uh, you know the medieval Christian uh, understanding of being was a mode of revealing, and just like and we'll have to go through this uh, some poiesis was a mode of revealing for the Greeks uh, in in 5th century BC. So it's a mode of revealing that challenges us to see everything as resources that can be ordered. And that's a very special mode of revealing because although it's true that every mode of revealing hides itself, that means every mode of revealing hides itself in the sense that a mode of revealing is a set of background practices that unless they stay in the background, they can't 
organize your understanding of the way you see of the way you see things, right? So the background practices, the practices that are, say, in the case of the Greek temple, gathered around the um, gathered around the holy site of the temple that uh, that direct you to understand everything in the light of the temple as uh, something that rises up and lingers for a while and then goes away. Those background practices can't do their work of allowing you to experience anything that in that way at all unless they stay in the background. If you were focused on the practices, they wouldn't do the work of directing your activity. So every mode of revealing stays in the background. Every mode of revealing is something like a style of the background practices. And so uh, they're all hidden, but in framing which is the mode of revealing of the current technological age, is hidden in a very special way. It's extra special hidden. <laughs> it's hidden not just in the sense that it's got to stay in the background so that you could, um, so that it can, so that it can withdraw and allow you to understand anything as anything at all. But it, it's hidden in the sense that it covers up the possibility of every other understanding of being also, and in doing so, covers up uh, that it's an understanding of being. So the upshot is that when the medieval Christians understood everything as created entities, created in the, in the mind of God, they didn't, it wasn't part of that experience that... Uh, the things that were created, the, the, their understanding of the way things were um, and what it was for anything to be uh, was the necessary one. I mean, after all, it was perfectly obvious to them that there were other understandings of what things were uh, in other cultures, some of which they were busy being at war with. And these other understandings of what it was for anything to be anything at all were in, so to speak, struggle with the medieval Christian understanding of being. And that struggle played itself out in the form of battles and in the form of, of great wars and in the form of a contest of cultures and so on and so forth. And so too for the Greeks and so too for the Romans and so on. The understanding of being in each of these cultures was wasn't experienced as necessary and obvious. It was experienced as under siege. It was experienced as in competition with other understandings of being. It was experienced as something that you, as a member of the culture, had to work hard to preserve and had to work hard to sort of keep in, keep in the, in, keep, sort of keep up. You had to you had to live the right way in order for your understanding of being to be the one that continued to be the one that kept making sense of things, and this meant engaging yourself in various kinds of practices that preserved your relation to God in the medieval Christian era, or pretty preserved your relation to the gods in the in the Greek era. Uh, these things were all experienced as contingent. They, they were experienced as given from without by the Greek gods or by the medieval Christian god or by something outside of you. 
uh, you, it was part of the experience that they were given from without, that you were grateful for them, and that you had to work hard to preserve, to preserve them. None of that characterizes the current understanding of being. The idea that everything is understood as resources to be ordered uh, and made more efficient seems to us not like a contingent characterization of the way the world is, but like the obvious and final fact about the way the world is. It seems to us that science and uh, physics in particular as the fundamental science, but the other sciences too, insofar as they'll, they're ultimately reducible to physics, will give us the final story about what the world is. When, it's, when we get that final story, there won't be any doubt that it is the final story. It won't be in competition with anything. It will be a rationally defended story, one that you couldn't but believe. Uh, and so it'll cover up the possibility that any of these other modes of revealing could have been or could be understandings of the way that things are. And we, I think we experience this. this. I think this is what, what Hegel sort of... I think this is what drove Hegel to think that history was a matter of progress and that once we got to the final story, it would be a story that superseded all of the other stories. It would be a story that made the earlier stories unnecessary. There's no, why should we go back to the medieval Christian story about what it is for anything to be anything at all? We now know that's not the right one. Why should we take seriously what the Homeric Greeks had to say about what it was for anything to be anything at all? We now know that's not the right one. Those were mistaken attempts to understand the way the world in the way that we now know the world ought to be understood. I think that I think that Heidegger thinks that that characterizes um, the contemporary understanding of being, uh, and that that's a danger. That's a severe danger. It's a danger for a couple of reasons, um, but the <coughs> main reason it's a danger. Well, there, so there are at least two reasons that it's a danger. One is that. Um, it, you know, and, yeah, sir. I still have a quick question, slightly back. But, I mean, you're saying this, you know, these Christian cultures went to war. Yeah. Um, to for their understanding of being, but don't, don't Western cultures today, every now and again, do the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> every now and again, I suppose. And don't we do it because we feel, you know, our way of being is threatened? Uh, okay, that's a great question. So let's think about it. Um, uh, Is that right? So is it that... um, Is it that... I think that's... Right. Uh, But I think it's an artifact. uh, And not... um, something that guides us in the right direction. So I guess if I'm just thinking about it off the top of my head, but I guess if I had to say um, how to think about that. So let's take the case where, you know, a certain country, call it America, goes to war with another country, call it Iraq. And here's a here's a here's an explanation of why we why, you know, we might have done that. Well, 
we understood that there was a better way to organize society, uh, and we thought that uh, it was an obvious truth that it was a be- that ours was a better way to organize society, and we thought that we would be, so to speak, doing the world a favor if we were if we did that. Now that's a kind that's one way of of characterizing it. That's a sort of 19th century white man's burden kind of characterization of the. Uh, of the motivation. It's not obvious that's the right characterization. Um, uh, it, another characterization, maybe the one that you had in mind, um, is one that that says, uh, "No, we didn't do it for that reason. We did it because we were because we really felt that our mode of understanding was threatened. That there was something about the way another culture understood what it was to be anything at all." that was a threat to the way we understand what it is to be anything at all. Um, so, I, so I think, I mean, there, I think there's something to be said for both of those characterizations. I just think that in some ways, neither of them really gets at what Heidegger thinks is peculiar to modern technology, to, to the contemporary age. And maybe that tells us that Heidegger was wrong, or maybe it tells us that um, America isn't the best. America now isn't the best characterization of it. Yeah, let's go. Let's jump in. To help me out. Yeah, that's helpful. So, so somehow the idea is, yeah, of course it's true that uh, that we go to war, people go to war. It's just that there are different ways of understanding what it is to go to war. One can go to war over over you know the idea that this is a you know that you've got a better way to organize resources or somehow a more efficient way or somehow a way of organizing resources that'll really get you know really you know make things better in the Sense of make them more efficient, make them more well organized, and uh, and uh, that's a way of going to war that doesn't involve having the conception of the world as to be ordered at stake. In fact, it's a so to speak driven by the conception uh, that the world needs to be ordered. That's helpful. Yeah. It's also I'm not quite sure how this relates to such but I agree with it. It seems that one peculiar aspect of, say, this particular war is that uh, people frequently talk about it. Like, oh, they're back in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in, in yeah. some regions of the some countries and regions of the theocracy. This yeah. is it's how we used to do things way back when. So yeah. it's not so much a competing sort of ideas of being, or even one notion of being thinking is right, where another is wrong. It, it's almost one way of being like, confronting its its past. After it's shown to be deficient, it's yeah. That feels right. I mean, it feels as though, insofar as there are, you know, we can understand what the motivations for going to war are. They don't. They don't. It doesn't feel as though there there are the kinds of motivations that you might have seen in, in medieval Christendom. It feels as though they're motivated by things that are explicable in terms of 
the technological understanding of being rather than motivated uh, in terms of, you know, uh, a sense that that understanding of being is under attack. Right. Yeah, that feels right. But we're additionally sort of justified because they're backward. Yeah, well, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is part of the contemporary understanding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what I was going to say. Okay. Okay, yeah. So... I think it's an interesting question, Anton, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure we've, we've finished it, but anyhow, I, I think you'd have to say something like that if you were gonna, if you were gonna defend Heidegger on, on this account. Um, so I was, I was just finishing up this overview though, so we have, we have the idea that the contemporary technological mode of revealing hides itself in a special way, namely, it hides that it's a mode of revealing by making uh, by making it seem an obvious and necessary truth that when you're studying the way things are un- properly understood as mo- mo- uh, ordered resources in modern science, you're getting at the way things really are, not at um, a way that's been contingently revealed. So that's and that's a, that's supposed to be a danger. Heidegger thinks for two reasons. One is that. Um, one is that it leads to nihilism. So, I mean, the contemporary understanding of being is, akin, is sort of almost identical with nihilism. It's the view that's leveled down everything intrinsically in such a way that it's all equal to everything else. And that means there's no reason to prefer anything. And that just is nihilism. And that may involve, and Heidegger thinks ultimately it does involve, even our understanding of ourselves as resources to, to be ordered, uh, which, you know, sort of gives the nihilism uh, a kind of double turn. Um, so that's, that's one danger. But another danger is that uh, it makes the kind of freedom that Heidegger thinks essentially characterizes us impossible. And this notion of freedom that he has is a very peculiar one that comes about, you know, in about three paragraphs and then gets referred to in one sentence later. But it has something to do, I think, with the idea that uh, what's special about us isn't that we get to arbitrarily choose on the basis of our will how we get to act, Freedom is special, a special characteristic of us, an essential characteristic of us. It's what, uh, what really makes us into the kinds of beings that we are. But it's not the fact that we have the freedom autonomously and willfully to choose to do something, or even to choose laws in accordance with which to act, like Kant thought. It's something, it's something different. It's that we have the freedom to uh, listen to and hear. He said, these are the verbs he uses. It's a kind of receptivity. Our freedom is a kind of receptivity. In another place, he says, our freedom amounts to our our having the capacity to let ourselves be bound by um, something outside of us. And the thing outside, what it is that's outside of us is a way the practices are organized. In other words, what it is that's outside of us is a mode of revealing, an understanding of being. 
And understandings of being can organize themselves in different ways. And what makes us free is that we have the capacity, at least some individuals in the culture have the capacity, to, through uh, poetry and thinking and works of art, initiate new understandings of being. But if you, if you don't have the sense that it's in virtue of an understanding of being that we understand what anything is in the first place, then you, you're never going to be able to initiate, have the sense that we could initiate a new understanding of being. Understandings of being are just sort of off the table. And so the very peculiar kind of freedom that characterizes us is stripped away from us by this contemporary understanding of being as as one that presents itself in this specially hidden way. Yeah? Uh, so, is freedom our ability to be like, is it bound by various practices? To let ourselves be bound. To let ourselves yeah. Be bound, or, is it, or is it to initiate new practices? Well, it's both. Um, although the notion of initiation is, it, it, you have to be careful about. So, um, the way in which it's possible to initiate pra- new practices will be different in different uh, epochs. So, in the epic where the understanding of being is poiesis, it will be through a, a certain it'll be through a certain set of practices here it'll be a, through a different set of practices in the contemporary version I think he thinks that the practices are going to involve emphasizing our receptivity over our um, subjectivity or, or our spontaneity over our willfulness uh, but so anyhow, that's a bit murky. I think it becomes a little clearer in the turning. But uh, yeah, so we have this capacity. So, the, but the special danger of the modern, of the contemporary understanding of being is that we seem not to be able to get out of it. It presents itself as the necessary and final end. Uh, and insofar as we are historical beings who are capable of having new understandings of being. It's, and that's essential to us. It seems to strip that freedom o- away from us. So that's the danger. The saving possibility goes along with this danger, though. And just let me try to say it in one or two sentences. So, so you have the picture on the table. So the saving possibility... So the danger is that we don't understand our current mode of revealing as a mode of revealing. We understand it as the way things are, full stop. But there's something peculiar about that that's useful. Namely, the reason that we don't understand the current mode of revealing as a mode of revealing and instead understand it as the necessary and final story about how things are is that we don't experience it as given by a particular being outside of us. So in all the earlier epochs, Part of what it was to um, to think of and experience your understanding of being as contingent involved the fact that you experienced it as given to you by some particular entity. And, and God might have given a different understanding of being. Or maybe there, there might have been a different entity that, that was giving the understanding of being. A different God, say. Uh, that was found in, in other cultures. So the contingency of the understanding of being was directly tied to the fact that you experienced it as coming from a particular entity. 
So we don't experience our understanding of being as coming from any entity at all. And so we experience it as necessary. And yet, if we could come to experience our mode of revealing as given to us from outside of us, by the background practices, not by some particular entity, then we'd have a huge advantage over every other, over every other culture in the history of the West. First of all, we wouldn't be inclined to um, ignore the ontological difference. We'd have a better understanding of what being is because we wouldn't mistake it for a being. And second of all, what goes along with that is, and now I'll just sort of read from the end of the book, the end of the essay, um, but let me see if I can find this. Sorry, let me just look. Yeah, on page 33. Uh, we may be able to come to understand the role that we play in preserving the understanding of being. So he says on 33, um, and framing comes to pass for its part in the granting that lets man endure. That's to say, if you experience our understanding of being, of things as resources to be ordered, as something that's given to us from without, then you'll experience it as granted. Uh, so it, in, for, this is the way in framing comes to pass, it, uh, in the granting that lets man endure, although we don't experience this granting as yet unexperienced, but perhaps more experienced in the future. Um, so, uh, that he may be the one who is needed and used for the safekeeping of the coming to, to presence of truth. Thus does the arising of the saving power appear. So the saving power has to do with the fact that you can't put off on someone else, on some other entity, on God or on the gods or something outside of you, uh, the need to preserve the understanding of being that you've got. You met, insofar as you don't experience it as given to you from outside of yourself, then you may have the, the possibility of coming to act in such a way as to value your role as the preserver of that understanding of being. That's, I think that's the upshot. So the danger is tied with the saving power. And, um, uh, in this sort of peculiar way. Okay. That's, I think that's the, that's the overview. The contemporary mode of revealing is supremely dangerous because it hides all other modes of revealing and, in fact, hides the fact that it's a mode of revealing. But that it's got a saving power, too, because it does that by making it seem as though there's not some particular entity that gives us this understanding. If we can nevertheless come to experience it as given... We won't experience it as given by some entity, and so we'll recognize the role that we have to play in preserving the, the understanding. Yeah, Wendy. Um, so I have a short question. So my question is sort of, the, the way that you're describing this is being sort of like sort of suggests that previous modes of revealing left open for their for believers in them the possibility that they believe like, believed in the contingency of them. And I don't necessarily see that to be the case. Like, 
there, there seemed to be sort of a previous past where people believed that whatever their belief system was, was like the belief system. I mean, and that's why there's struggle about, like, struggle over those belief systems. So, mm. it, I mean, the sense in which it seems to be saying just that they might have been open to an alternative interpretation seems some way, like, somehow, yeah, I don't know, an like, maybe anachronistic or, like, I don't know. I don't know that the Greeks necessarily believed another, had another belief system. Like if it had been presented to them, even if there was like that, you know, sort of a string of evidence. Yeah. So is there a way to? Sort of so let's try. Yeah. First of all, it's important not to call them belief systems because they're not belief systems. They're sort of coordinated sets of background practices. But yeah, I guess. It, yeah. Yes, yeah, I guess I'm thinking in terms of like because they're. they're it's all, should I also not include something about like being coherent? Because that seems to be another. No, no, coherence is an important feature of them. Yeah, in fact, unified, coherent in its often, I mean, after the pre-Socratics, coherent in in the sense that they give a completely unified understanding of what it is for anything to be anything. So, so, of course, it's true... So, I get, I mean, I'm not quite sure how to say it. Here's one possibility. Um, one of the things that's supposed to be true about ancient Greek culture, for instance, is that, um, and we know this by, by studying the ancient Greek gods, is that the, the Greek gods um, come to be incorporated into particular cultures. So there's a battle between, you know, you know, two cities, or there's a battle between two tribes. Each tribe has their local deities. The the tribe that wins the battle um, also gets to bring into their background practices the gods, the local deities of the group that of the group that they've of, of the group that they've beaten out. So this way of bringing into your background practices. The local deities by bringing in the people, you know, the people from this other tribe, has something to do with the idea that you experience the understanding of being not certainly not as something that you have control over. It's nothing like that, but you experience the understanding of being the sort of organized set of background practices as things that can and do change. On a regular basis, so you've got this very live sense, I, uh, the way I imagine it, that um, what your culture is up to and what your understanding of what anything is to be anything at all is um, almost always, up, you know, up for change in virtue of the fact that you may get, uh, you you know, you may get defeated by a, a more dominant culture, or you may defeat other weaker cultures, and there'll be this sense that you, you know, that the gods, the local deities get brought in. So that's one of the things that doesn't seem to be possible here, I mean, in the contemporary understanding of being. I mean, if there is a, if, if there is a battle between, you, you know, us and some other culture, it doesn't look like what's up for grabs is the question whether modern science is really going to be the way we understand anything. So I want to. I'll try to press on the point. So we Great. might not say that modern cult, like modern science, is up for grabs, but we certainly like we have not only do like our science practices ongoing, but we have philosophies of science, and like there yes. are people who have like different hypotheses about like whether entropy would have been the way it is if. Um, if the Big Bang had been different. So there's certainly an element of contingency there, and there's certainly ways in which, like, when we are pressed to look at how 
like some phenomena doesn't fit into like our scientific understandings, or like the way that our science reveals something about our world, mm-hmm. we modify that science in a way that, that in a way that might be analogous to like bringing in deities. Good. So, and there seems to be some sort of parallel there. That so it may be in. true. I mean, you know, you have to remember that this is written in 1949, yeah, and so the Kuhnian account of what science is up to. Uh, you know, isn't available to him. But his view is that modern... Here's a, his characterization of what um, what modern science is up to. Uh, let me see if I can just... Uh, on 21. Modern science's way of representing pursues and entraps nature as a calculable coherence of forces. That's a pretty general characterization that might leave room for the possibility that there could be revolutions within science even. Um, but it doesn't mean that, for alternatives to science. Yeah, exactly, right. So there might be revolutions within science that are revolutions over the issue. Um, you know, which calculable coherence of forces best characterizes the natural world that we live in? But the revolutions don't seem to be about whether you could give a, uh, a story about the natural world in terms of calculable forces. Uh, and so that, and, and that's the sense in which I think he'll think that the contemporary understanding of being presents itself as um, the final one. Of course, there are details to work out, um, but the but the broad stroke picture is the same and and can't but be the same. That's this, we're that way revealing. There's It's the right thing to push on. So let me see if I can say something about the last one. He thinks it is special, a special feature. Let me just see if I can find a passage where he says it. Um, the, there's a passage that starts the supreme danger, or that's about the supreme danger, uh, on page 27. Uh, at the very bottom, he says... Um, Yet, so he says, every revealing uh, is a danger, and danger as such. Um, and why is that? Why is it danger as such? It's danger as such because it's in the background, and there is a sense in which, insofar as it's in the background, it presents itself. This is something that we need to get clear about. You guys are right to push on it. So, insofar as a mode of revealing has to stay in the background has to withdraw, 
The background practices have to withdraw in order for them to work as a mode of revealing. There is an important sense in which uh, they're all hidden. Any mode of revealing is hidden from the people who live in the context of it. Um, And that's a danger, he says. In fact, danger as such. Um, So he says that on the top of, in the middle of 26. In whatever way the destining of revealing may hold sway, that's to say, whatever understanding of being you're in, the unconcealment in which everything that is shows itself at any given time harbors the danger that man may quail at the unconcealed and may misinterpret it. Thus, where everything that pre- uh, presences exhibits itself in the light of a cause-effect coherence, even God can, for representational thinking, lose all that is exalted and holy, the mysteriousness of his distance. He's talking now about something like, you know, early 17th century Europe. That's the representational thinking of Descartes. God becomes the God of the philosophers. He becomes an efficient cause rather than something that's holy. And that's a way, that's a way that you can misunderstand what is. And that's, um, that's a, a danger. It's a danger because it allows you to, because it encourages you, uh, to understand everything in a wrong way, that's to say, for instance, understand everything as efficient causes, um, uh, that can't be the right way of understanding everything, but you experience it as the right way of understanding everything, and so it gives you, the, it gives you a, a misunderstanding of what is. But our version is, our version is especially dangerous, so let's see why it's especially dangerous at the bottom. Yet when destiny reigns in the mode of enframing, it's the supreme danger. And that's for two reasons, and uh, let's read them. This danger attests itself to us in two ways. As soon as what is unconcealed no longer concerns man even as object, but does so rather exclusively as standing reserve, as resources. And man in the midst of objectlessness is nothing but the orderer of the standing reserve. Then he comes to the very brink of a precipitous fall, that is, he comes to the point where he himself will have to be taken as standing reserve. And then you get to this um, view, ultimately, that uh, it seems as though man everywhere and always encounters only himself. Where's the thing about Lord of the earth? Yeah. Meanwhile, man, precisely as the one so threatened, exalts himself to the posture of Lord of the earth. That Lord of the earth is the is the thing the extra thing that you get in enframing. So it's not just that so this is helpful. It's not just that the way that you're challenged to understand everything in terms of science um, seems necessary. It's that it seems as though uh, you're the only person you're You and your kind are the only ones capable of understanding and revealing it. And that's a special kind, so that's one thing. So that's, you lack, you lack a kind of great, uh, you lack a kind of gratefulness. You lack the sense that the, um, this mode of revealing is given to you, which you do still have in the Middle Ages, uh, though you may not have by the time of Descartes. 
where you experience God as an efficient cause, not as something holy that gives grace, say. Um, so you don't experience, you experience yourself as Lord of the earth, you don't experience this understanding of being as given to you. So that's the sense of necessity that I need. It's not just that, it's not just that um, it could have been otherwise. It's that it could have been other. It's that I mean, it couldn't have been otherwise. It's that it couldn't have been otherwise because there's nothing outside of you and the world in virtue of which the world is the way it is. There's no, there's no, there's no givenness. I, I feel like I'm sort of not being as clear as I can. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I think, I think that that's, that is like a good definition of what we're talking about. But I think that this could not exclude the possibility of when I do have this understanding that God is defining me as, or is defining me as, then I see that to be the final sense of being when I'm in that epoch. Yeah, right. So, so final... I think that each, each like... In order to like really define something as an epoch, you have to see it as that yeah. final moment. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, what's important to me? I mean, there's this, there's finality and there's finality. I mean, if it's part of your experience of the world that it is the way it is, in virtue of the graciousness of God, um, then there's a sense in which. It's being the way it is, is totally contingent. It might well have been some other way. Because after all, God might not have been so gracious. Or, you know, there might have been a different God, or whatever, right? So that, in, insofar as that sense of, um, things of, of givenness, I keep wanting to say givenness, you, it's part of the sense of, what it is for anything to be anything in every epic except our own that you're grateful for and not in control of uh, things being the way they are. And the gratefulness that you, that you experience is what's lacking. And, and we, we can't have it in our contemporary technological age because it doesn't seem like it could ever have been any other. Why be grateful? This is the way it had to be. It just and we and it's not this way because of anything outside of us. We just we are the ones who get to decide and discover. I mean, discover, I suppose. But but still, we're the ones who get to, to discover the way things are. There's no gratefulness about it, right? There's just facts of the matter, and that's the that's the peculiar feature of the necessity that I think is lacking in in every other epoch. Um, that, so that's the one thing. Let, let, let me just see if the second thing he says there, the danger attests itself in two ways. Let me see if there's the second way is interesting. Oh well, the second way is that it drives. In virtue of this, it drives out every other possibility of being. So that's the. So as a destiny in the next paragraph, uh, as a destining and framing banishes man into that kind of revealing which is in ordering where this ordering holds sway it drives out every other possibility of revealing so it has to drive out every other possibility of revealing in a peculiar way because I think you guys are right I mean there may be there may well be a sense in which um, in the medieval Christian era people living in medieval Christendom felt like 
theirs was the only understanding of being. And, and in fact, I, in other contexts, depend on this. I mean, I think uh, when Charles Taylor describes the current age as a secular age, the way in which he sort of gives that characterization is to say that um, in medieval Christendom, but not now, if you came across someone who didn't believe in your God, ipso facto, that was a reason not to take them as a human being. So there's a, there is a sense in which that understanding drives out every other possibility, but not in the same way. Not in the same way, because the fact that it's part of your experience of things being the way they are, that it's due to God's grace, makes it contingent. It makes it not just contingent, but it makes it part of your experience that it's contingent, that things are this way. And that's not... If that's the way you experience the world, then it doesn't have this feature of driving out every other possibility. And that's what's lacking in the contemporary age. I think it's getting clearer, thanks to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. Um. Just to, so to take this a little bit further, so yeah. because we were talking about the platonic idea of the good, is there something, is it because we're unable to access the higher sphere that we can, and can we use that as a, as a kind of parallel between, say, God's grace and the unknowability of the ideal sphere? Oh. Because um, how, how are the Greeks going to be? Oh yeah, well, so I mean, in the platon in the platonic case, uh, I mean, it's not just that. I mean, you know, sort of on as on one model of the Christian version, it's not just that the form of the good is is just any old thing. It lives in its particular realm. It is this particular thing that allows itself to um, uh, to be understood by us, but not and not through not just through hard work. I mean, it's, for one thing, uh, you've got to be born with the right kind of soul in Plato, and for another thing, you've got to go through lots and lots of education, and that doesn't guarantee anything, and so on and so forth. So I, there's no sense of grace. I think that's true. But there is a sense, I mean, I think Heidegger will say there's at least a nascent sense of wonder. Um, in the pre-Socratics, he thinks that wonder was the motivating mood. That's what you know, drove them to want to give a metaphysical story in the first place. Uh, and I'm, I think he'll say that in the case of, uh, in the case of the Platonic and there was, you know, classical Greeks, there's some of that sense of wonder left over. There's, but more than that, there's a notion that, uh, knowledge, uh, I mean, this is Heidegger's peculiar view. It comes up sort of Obliquely, in a certain point here, where he's talking about techne, um, uh, on page thirteen, he's, he says, "Look, the right way to understand these ancient Greek words, techne and episteme, um, is into, as two different kinds of knowledge. Roughly, I think he means know how and know that. Except that the way you get to achieve these kinds of knowledge." Uh, is through a certain kind of um, poet, poetic uh, relation to the world. So that's, in the case of the craftsman, a very special thing that we'll talk about next time that involves 
um, you know, caring for, tending the things that you're bringing forth into being. In the case of the thinker, it involves having a caring and uh, tending and nurturing kind of relationship to your students and to the realm that you're trying to disclose and so on and so forth. So I think he'll think that all of this is not grace, um, but it's the sense that... Uh, it's not a sense of grace, but it's the sense that there's something outside of yourself that you need to be very careful with and to take care of in order to in order to um, in order to what in order to understand in order to understand what anything what it is for anything to be anything at all. So it'll it'll happen in different ways in different epochs. What he thinks is peculiar about our epoch is that it doesn't happen at all. We don't have any sense that. Um, that the well, let's put it this way: we don't have any sense that um, it could have been otherwise than that. Modern science will ultimately tell us how how it is for anything to be anything. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So I think that's helpful. I, let me let me go back to. Uh, Number one on my outline here, <laughs> which we've made it to finally, because um, I wanted to s- start out talking about the opening paragraph. Um, what we, what we, need, so what I want to talk about is the opening paragraph, and then I want to try to talk about um, uh, the difference between poiesis and the challenging forth that characterizes the modern the contemporary understanding of being. Um, but first let's let's talk about the opening paragraph because this sets the goal of the essay. And I don't think you can really understand the goal of the essay until the whole essay is is done. Um, and so at least we've got a a sort of caricature of the view that the essay is heading towards. So what is the goal of the of the essay? He says that what he wants to do is to open our human existence to the essence of technology. He says that uh, he ought to say that in the first paragraph. Yeah, at the bottom of page three, uh, the relate. So he wants to give us a free relationship to the essence of technology, and the relationship will be free if it opens our human existence to the essence of technology. What does that mean? Well, the essence of technology, again, is not technology itself, but is something like the mode of revealing of the current technological age. It's the background style of the practices in terms of which it seems obvious to us that the modern scientific approach to understanding of the, to understanding the world is the obvious and necessary one. So he wants to Open our, hum- open our human existence to the essence of technology. I think he means that he wants to give us a way of relating to these background practices that uh, doesn't take them as the obvious and necessary way that things have to be. He wants to give us a free relationship to the background practices, to the style of the culture. And he says, I can't remember if I read the free, the freedom stuff already or not. I don't think I did. Um, on page 25, 
What is it to have a free relationship to your background understanding of being? Well, it's something like you can recognize it as an understanding of being that's uh, that could be otherwise. Now, in the earlier epochs, that understanding of the current understanding of being as something that could be otherwise always was tied to the fact that you experienced it as given from some entity outside of yourself. But that's not the way we experience our background understanding of being. Uh, And so if we can come to have a free relationship to it, if we can come to understand uh, the background understanding of being as something that can change and develop, something that the style of which can uh, uh, go through revolutions and can begin again and so on and so forth. If we start to understand it that way, then we won't understand that by un- by taking it that it, it's that way because God might have might not have been so gracious. We'll come to understand the background understanding of being as up for grabs in virtue of the fact that ultimately it's traceable to us. Ultimately, the background understanding is traceable to us. He says, where's all the stuff about man? Well, never mind. Let me, let me read the free passage first. So on the top of 25, let's hope this is helpful. He says, always the unconcealment of that which is goes upon a way of revealing. That's just to say... Whenever in the history of the West we understand anything to be anything at all, we understand it to be anything at all in virtue of a background set of practices in our culture. Always the destining of revealing holds complete sway over man. I take it that means something like um, uh, the mode of revealing or the way of revealing is a background set of practices... It's a destining. That's to say, it develops, it changes. The background practices gather in different ways, in different circumstances, and those the ways that they gather can change. And uh, that those changes um, hold sway over man. That's to say, they determine how it is that you'll understand any what it is for anything to be anything at all. But that destining, the way the background practices change is never a fate that compels. It's That's to say, it's never the way Hegel thought it was, sort of the progress of history, and it's never the way we now take it to be, a necessary fact about the way things are. It's never a fate that compels. For man becomes truly free only insofar as he belongs to the realm of destiny, and so becomes one who listens and hears and not one who is simply constrained to obey. I take it that means something like man becomes truly free once you recognize that it, that the way the practices develop is not in your control, but it's not totally outside of your control either by being sensitive to and receptive to various marginal practices that are helpful for your culture. You can change the background. You can come to 
be involved in, either as a thinker or as a poet or as a preserver. You can come to be involved in uh, uh, changes in the background practices. And that's what it is to be a human being. That's what it is to, to be free. So he wants to give us this free relationship to technology. You couldn't understand that at all if you just started out reading the first paragraph. But that's what he says. We're going we're gonna to like to prepare a free relationship uh, to technology. I take it that's a relationship in which we can hear the call of other modes of revealing. We can't do that now because the current mode of revealing hides the possibility that all the other modes of revealing are modes of revealing at all. But he wants to prepare the way for us to be able to hear the call of other modes of revealing. For us to hear the sense in which, for instance, uh, it might be useful and interesting and important to go back and read about the Homeric understanding of being and retrieve from that understanding of being practices around which our culture can organize itself. And it might be important and interesting and useful to go back to the medieval Christian understanding of being and understand it in such a way that practices that were preserved there could be brought back and are practices around which we could organize our understanding of being. And those are all, those moves are all, so to speak, cut out by the modern understanding, by the contemporary understanding of being. And he wants to open up the possibility that we could live our lives in such a way as to call back these marginal these marginal practices. That I think that's what that means. Op, uh, open our human existence to the essence of uh, of technology. Yeah. Okay. So I think so. I think that's what I think that's what that means. That's the goal of the essay. It's a it's a call to action. Really, because um, because what he's really hoping he'll prepare the ground for is not the possibility that people can write a whole bunch of essays about Heidegger. What he really hoping he'll open the possibility for is that we can live our lives in a way that uh, makes clear that we're the kinds of beings that can be open to a range of ways of understanding what it is for anything to be anything at all. And that the, um, so to speak, um, apparently necessary understanding of being that characterizes the contemporary culture um, really, really isn't what it seems to be. That's what he wants to make it possible for us to live our lives like that. And it's not all that clear in this uh, essay what that's going to consist in other than um, the possibility that we'll recognize ourselves as the safekeepers uh, and preservers of being. So that we'll be recognized ourselves as needed and used for the safekeeping of the coming presence presence of truth. So somehow that we will um, resist in our practices the understanding of everything as resources to be ordered and more efficient. So let's get into some of those. Let's get into the the, the real phenomena that go along with that. Um, so in other words, let's characterize the mode of revealing of modern technology. So 
the first thing we need to do start the stuff first stuff that we need to do starts on page 15 and I just want to read starting in the middle or just about the middle of uh, page 14 uh, so what is modern technology he says it too is a revealing that's supposed to be he thinks a striking claim it's supposed to be the claim that modern technology uh, isn't modern technology, which of course is tied in a very important way to modern science, as he describes earlier, sort of motivated by modern science. Um, modern technology isn't just a characterization of the way things are. It isn't just the final story about the way things are. It's a background understanding of being, a revealing. Only when we allow our attention to rest on this fundamental characteristic does that which is new in modern technology show itself to us. And what's new is that modern technology shows itself as the final understanding of being. Then, so let's uh, go... Well, okay, I'll, I'll keep reading here. He wants, to, he wants to distinguish the contemporary understanding of being with the understanding of being that you get in the classical Greeks that he calls poiesis, which is just the Greek, related to the Greek verb for doing or making. But it's uh, it really means doing or making in this tending kind of way, cultivating kind of way, the way a gardener might cultivate a garden, say. He thinks that that, was char- that understanding was of what it was for you to have a relationship to anything at all characterized classical Greek, the classical Greek world. So so let's read here. And yet the revealing that holds sway throughout modern technology does not unfold into a bringing forth in the sense of poiesis. So poiesis, again, the classical Greek understanding of being, and his his term for it uh, is, is bringing forth. The revealing that rules in modern technology is a challenging it's a challenging forth instead of a bringing forth. And he's going to give examples of that. A challenging which puts to nature the um, demand. I don't think in the German it says unreasonable demand. It doesn't. I don't think that makes sense. But the demand uh, puts, forth, puts to nature the demand that it supply energy that can be extracted and stored as such. So our understanding of nature is in in the modern technological age, is an understanding of nature as a resource from which we can extract and store uh, energy. That's the the way we understand it. Um, Through logging or through drilling for oil or uh, any of these these ways of extracting energy resources from nature. So he says, well, you know, what's so, you know, isn't that the way everyone's always understood nature? Uh, doesn't this hold true for the old windmill as well? Isn't that a way of extracting and storing energy from nature? And he says, no. Uh, the windmill sails do indeed turn in the wind. They're left entirely to the winds blowing, but they're left entirely to the winds blowing. But the windmill doesn't unlock energy from the air currents in order to store it. This is, a, this is an important fact for Heidegger. The difference between the windmill, uh, and the kind of windmills that we have now, that I take it, store energy in batteries or whatever they store store energy in. The difference between a normal windmill, an old-fashioned windmill, and the kind that you know they want to build off the coast of 
Martha's Vineyard or wherever, is that the old windmill only blew when the wind was blowing, only turned when the wind was blowing. It didn't have this capacity to turn every moment into an equal moment, a moment in which energy is available to you. 